0: So, we can have each of the panelists respond to what Rajivji has shared with us and uh, then I think Rajivji will respond perhaps to what they have to share. And so a little bit of discussion around that and then I would like the discussion to extend here um, after that and whatever you want to ask, clarify, argue, please do that. Um, so what do I do? Well. Let's not keep it like this, Let's begin with Professor Punam Bhadra.
1: I think uh, the first question that comes to my mind as I hear uh, you speak, and something that you started with yourself, which is really, what do we mean when we say uh, the Indian grand narrative? Actually, it doesn't say the grand Indian narrative here, it says the Indian grand narrative. So, what do we really mean? Um, when we use the word Indian, I mean, what, what kind of an image does it conjure up? Does it, is it a geographical entity? Is it a psychological entity? I mean, what does the term Indian really evoke as an image? I think is a question that is fairly valid because we have such tremendous diversity. And although I heard you saying that Diversity, uh, which talks of how you know diversity sort of coexists, is a postmodern concept. I'm not quite sure can we really call it a postmodern concept because for India it's it's a lived reality ever since we were born. I do not see anybody in India saying that we were not diverse, that there was a time when we were homogeneous. So I think. Uh, diversity is as old as India and the civilization of India. Uh, so I'm not sure whether we mean uh, that diversity coexists is a postmodern phenomena. I don't know whether that's what you meant, uh, but certainly today in India we are at a position where we seem to have forgotten that there, that diversity is a lived reality, and we need to speak about diversity. There's a time when we lived it very naturally, but today we seem to be wanting to speak about it. We seem to be saying we are diverse. Hey, are you listening? We are diverse. You know, we seem to be wanting to say that. I'm wondering why. I'm just wondering why do we do, why do we feel the need when, you know, my mother who's now 92 years old and she sees a film, um, Amrita Pritham's Pinjar, Uh, That's based on Amrita Pritam's story, novel. And she says, you know, um, there there was really no difference in the way we dressed, whether it was a Muslim family or a Hindu family. We used to wear very similar kind of dresses, ornaments, and things. There was was no distinction. But today, actually, we are looking at these distinctions as something that uh, probably you referred to it also in the sense of identity politics, which I think is is something that has played out and I quite agree with you that this is something that has emerged over the years, Um, you know, having the legacy of the British colonial sort of divide and rule kind of policy and we've carried it on. It's not that our people looked at it any differently. Um, I would like to uh, just focus upon a few aspects which I seem to have gathered uh, from some of the writings of great Indian thinkers that I have been able to understand and specifically in the current context. And I hope that that will evoke some fresh questions in our mind as we discuss the whole idea of this uh, narrative. Um, To me the the real Indian narrative is the narrative of diversity and the fact that it's a lived reality. Uh, It's interesting that in the constitution of India, we have a word called fraternity, but we rarely speak about it. We speak about equality, we speak about democracy, we speak about liberty, but very rarely do we look at the term fraternity, and which I think is probably the most characteristic aspect of our society. Um, And I'm reminded of Ambedkar. Ambedkar made a very interesting distinction uh, when he was debating uh, what should go into the Indian constitution, is that while we have achieved uh, one man, uh, one vote, which is the political system of democracy, so every man's vote counts, but we haven't achieved one man, one value. So, in a sense, he cautioned us that as far as the social democracy goes, we don't have it. We've been able to put in place a political system of democracy with one man and one vote, but he cautioned us that till we do not have one man, one value, our political democracy will also be at peril. And sure enough, we can see that it's happening. I'd like to now just come to a couple of things that I uh, think can be drawn upon from uh, Vivekananda and Vivekananda's writings, which have made uh, sort of world history in in one sense. Obama also talked about it when he came here to India. Um, It was Vivekananda actually who spoke about the spiritual and the secular education of the nation. Very interesting. Uh, he cautioned us against what he called the dualistic perception, the tendency to look at things in dichotomies, you know? So I would say the tendency to look at the West and the East also would be one such dichotomy. He cautioned us against a dichotomist way of looking at things. He cautioned us against a conditioned functioning of the mind, Very clearly so. Post-Renaissance, one of the most significant achievements of human civilization is reason, is the ability to actually logically argue, to develop reason, to be able to reason things. But Vivekananda cautioned that actually reason is one instrument of gaining knowledge, but not the only instrument. In fact, he talked of instinct as the lowest instrument And then comes reason, after which he calls the third instrument of knowledge, which he refers to as inspiration. So surely this is something that we need to look at very carefully. Reason is itself capable of becoming unreasonable. That is what he cautioned us against. And I think that's, that's what tends to happen when we are talking about a diverse kind of a world, which is totally interdependent. Today in a globalization kind of era, actually we can't talk of just the Indian, or just the US, or just a country. We are in a globalized world. So there's more and more interdependence that is demanded of us as civilizations. And I think this is something that really struck me uh, interestingly, Vivekananda spoke about uh, the goal of education being where we um, control both the external and the internal. Now, he, he talked of uh, you know, the, the, the fact that anybody could do this either by work, by worship, by psychic control, or philosophy, by one or more, or all of these, and be free which means that getting into uh, immersing yourself in work, itself is meditation or can be meditation. The idea he was trying to say is that we need to control the inner, it's not just the external that we're looking at, which is what comes from the post renaissance development all over the world, where we're conquering nature, but he was talking about the inner and the need to conquer the inner. And that is also peculiar to Hinduism, I would say. But we need to expand this idea to to mean, is it really something that is so peculiar only to um, the, the wisdom and the knowledges that come from within the Indian subcontinent, can we say? Or is this something that many people have grappled with all across the world? And I think that's the kind of thing that we need to understand, rather than identify ourselves as somebody distinct, unique, superior, having, you know, having a civilization which no one else ever thought about. I think we have learned from each other. I think we have benefited a lot from the different kinds of people who have inhabited the subcontinent called India. And Vivekananda says, This is the whole of religion. Doctrines, or dogmas, or rituals, or books, or temples, or forms are but secondary details. The point is that somewhere we seem to have conflated this whole idea of inspiration as an instrument of knowledge. And then he talks of a higher ideal, which is that of spirituality. Today we seem to have conflated spirituality with organized religion. And I think we need to make a distinction between the two. The narrative of India, I think, lies in that deeper sense of inspiration and spirituality, rather than in a kind of organized religion which some people tend to conflate. And I think uh, Rajiv's work probably shows that this itself is a fallacy and I think we need to be very careful about that because once again we seem to be coming to uh, uh, giving far more um, uh, you know, uh, weight to that which is the overt rather than that which is the inner. I'd also like to um, uh, you know, say just one more thing uh, what about Vivekananda when he talks about truth. Truth, he says, is nobody's property. No race, no individual, no faith can lay exclusive claim. Truth is the nature of all souls. So when he talks of purity and morality, that morality and purity is associated with the control of the mind. It's not about behavior. It's not about social norms. It's not about the way we need to behave as a civilization. It's something much deeper. It's something to do with how we look at each other as part of a cosmos that is uh, connected. Let me come to Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo, and I'm sure Monica is going to give us far more depth uh, in that it's been a subject of her area of research and uh, a lot of, I would say, lived reality for Monica. Uh, But the purpose of education in terms of what Aurobindo talks about, is both collective and individual. And he was very, very interested in looking at the relationship between the individual and society. And I think that also is something which is very deep to our tradition. So the point I'm trying to say is, and to quote Aurobindo, the individual exists not in himself alone, but in the collectivity the free use of our liberty includes also the liberation of others and of mankind. So, you know, there's an echo of Gandhi's Swaraj when he talks of liberating ourselves from the British. It's a much deeper idea of Swaraj, that we need to liberate ourselves, what he calls probably, from the fetters that incarcerate our inner selves. And anybody who's nationalistic uh, at that time, we were talking of Tagore, Gandhi, Vivekanand, Aurobindo, who were trying to break away from the colonial system of education and give us a different way of educating our people. And this was the central idea. Coming a little closer to more contemporary history, Krishnamurti's central idea was an idea of transformation. Transformation of the individual consciousness, and that is what he said was education, that regards... Relationship is the basis of human existence. Now that's another very interesting idea. If you regard yourself as part of the larger whole, you know the idea that you were talking about in Indira's net, it's the scientists call, something called the hologram, right? Which has a part of the whole, and the whole is in, in each part, so to speak. But what is important is the relationship along these. And the process of education, according to Krishnamurti, must include an understanding of deep cultivation of psychological processes as much as academic excellence. So education must help students to recognize and break down in themselves all social distinctions and prejudices and discourage the acquisitive pursuit of power and domination. Now these are our thinkers. And I think if you look at the concept of Hinduism, you'll find a diversity of ideas that bring on the plate of Hinduism. I do not think we can define Hinduism and anchor it in one kind of a mold. It's so important for us to fall back to our philosophers, to fall back to our wisdom, in order to understand that really the power of India lies in shifting our gaze to the inner, because for us, the greatest form of knowledge was controlling the inner, and then to see the relationship of the inner with the outer. This is the difference, perhaps, between the narratives that come from developed and so-called Western societies. But my last word of caution would be, that we mustn't fall into the trap of dichotomies by comparing the West with the East, because this is a trap of the post-Renaissance Enlightenment period. And I think we need to go beyond reason and yet not ignore reason and make it a part of our pursuit for harmony, love and peace in society. Thank you. What Ambedkar meant was that since we have such a hierarchical society, you have people who have been marginalized. He was a Dalit, so he was speaking for Dalits specifically. So what he said is that socially, everyone is not equal. Everyone is not treated equally. So that's what he meant. We don't have one man, one value. Can you share
2: a few of my uh, related ideas on what uh, Rajesh spoke? I think um, when we look at self psychologically, you know, uh, what comes across is that self is just like a stream of water you know it's just like a stream of water, and from the moment you are born and you know as you grow and develop, you come across various perspectives you know from your family, from your school, from you know your own culture, from different cultures and it's very interesting that you know, when you come across these perspectives, uh, you start using these perspectives to define and structure yourself. So someone who's a Marxist can explain a lot on the basis of Marxism. Someone who's a psychoanalyst can explain everything on the basis of psychoanalysis, you know, and so on and so forth. So what we really, I think, need to keep in mind as people who wish to evolve is that, Limiting ourselves, you know, though we all can have our own favorite perspectives, and that comes from our own life experiences, that some perspectives strike a greater chord with us and some simply don't, and you know, it's different for different people. But we should not, you know, limit ourselves to just accepting our perspective as the reality, you know, so... so because you know we need to kind of you know we need to have our own perspectives fine but we need to look at all other perspectives with a very very open mind you know and i think so it's very important in this context that we look at our own uh, you know uh, heritage and our own culture also with an open mind you know from from the mind of a student you know not from what has been taught to us by our own people or from cultures outside. So, it's very important to have this first-hand experience. Uh, Secondly, I'd also like to share something about what is called, you uh, you know, because when these interpretations are given to us, it is said that this is scientific, this is not scientific, and that's scientific, and that's not scientific. Now, scientific inquiry can be a very, very tricky thing, you know, because at times what you, the assumptions and the presumptions and the perspective you start with, what you get in the end is really linked to that perspective, you know? To give you, two, uh, to give you two examples, you know, like if I were to measure everyone's blood pressure in this room, I'll get different kind of ratings. You know, someone will have it more, someone will have it less. But can I then simply conclude that this room is just blood pressure? No, you are people and you have a reading that's called blood pressure. So it's a huge error when, uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, uh, say a Western psychologist or a psychoanalyst looks at the n- uh, narrative of Goddess Kali and says that Kali is a phallic mother, you know. Now, to, uh, for people who may not be aware of that terminology, phallic mother is a Western psychoanalytical concept where it is said that the child is scared of an aggressive and a sexual mother you know so when someone may look at kali she has that aggression in her of course so goddess kali has aggression but it does not mean that you know a is equal to b that goddess kali is equal to aggression is equal to the phallic mother no it will be the same kind of error if i were to say that this room is equal to blood pressure, it's not. You know, so we need to be very, very open about, uh, you know, and we need to really look at what is scientific inquiry and how are we doing it, uh, you know, and how are uh, others doing it. Uh, then I think um, uh, uh, Rajivji also spoke about you know, um, you know, this grand narrative. What I would say is that um, you know, every culture has its narrative, and every culture does need a narrative, you know. We probably don't need a grand uh, narrative, and one should not have a grand narrative, but every culture needs a good enough narrative, You know, which means that every culture can look at certain strengths in its own self, and can also look at certain weaknesses in its own self. Because that's very, very important, you know, for, the person's development, because what happens is when we are born in a culture, you know, we already have that culture in us, you know, by certain uh, heritage, and as we grow up, so we are we are already into that culture, and if we don't have a good enough narrative of that culture, it leads to a lot of conflict and vacuum, which which really is. You know very evident in the kind of psychological conflicts and problems you know that the Indian population is facing because you know they come up with such very strange things you know to give you one or two examples like one uh, patient of mine he had a, he also had a medical illness so he once came and said that someone uh, you know has uh, I went to a you know very qualified Ayurvedic doctor who said that you know your problem has a cure over here Uh, You know, I, I kind of, you know, got those medicines but I'm not taking them because I have a doubt. Now, if you look at this thing, this speaks of a conflict in the person. You know, you are born here and you have a certain sense that Ayurveda can be helpful. But you also have this sense because you are conflicted in your own cultural narrative that it's probably too primitive, it's too unscientific, so, you cannot really make up your mind, you know? And similarly, uh, you know, so so this whole thing that when you are born in certain culture, it's like this, uh, uh, you know, to have a crippled cultural narrative is like uh, to be born like a child who is born into the family of, uh, you know, uh, criminals, you know, who l- looks up at his family and says that, oh my God, they are criminals, you know, and I belong to this family, you know? so. It is very important that we, that I think that we need to have a good enough na- uh, narrative for ourselves because that will help us sort out, you know, various conflicts, and it will also kind of, you know, take uh, forward our, uh, like, you know, uh, development. One last point because I often think of this thing that, you know, that many cultures have been exposed to, you know, say the Western invasion or the colonial, you know, past, and each country and culture has responded very differently of how they have taken it and what they are doing with it now. I think uh, what happened, uh, you know, I think uh, what probably happened in our context is also that due to this colonial rule, at least some of the Indians, you know, I'll not say all of the Indians, but at least some of the Indians, uh, you know, there's this uh, particular, uh, you know, process um, in psychology which we call identification with the aggressor, you know, and it's commonly seen in places where someone, uh, you know, like is. Uh, uh abused by someone so what happens is that rather than feeling the pain and anger and rising up against that person the person starts idolizing that person i think that that's uh, you know probably something that has happened with a large majority of indians that rather than uh, you know feeling uh, you know that pain and anger towards you know this um, you know uh, colonial thing and coming to terms with it and, you know, then seeing it, uh, objectively in terms of, you know, what good and what bad it did to you, they, they go on to a very blanket, uh, idealization of the whole thing. And I think that that also creates a kind of a conflict in their mind, you know, so, uh, thank you so much. That's what I have to
3: share.
4: I have a very small point to make and that is about family life. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are aware of the fact that uh, there was an Indian couple in Norway um, and uh, there continues there continue to be issues with several other uh, parents whose children were taken away from them. One of the cases was where a child was taken away by the Norwegian Child Care Services because of the fact that the child was given Crocine uh, by the mother as per Norwegian law, you're not allowed to give children medication without the prescription of a Norwegian doctor. Um, this, the first case which was much larger and which received a lot of media attention was the fact that Sagarika and her husband, they were, he was an engineer, lost their ch- custody of their children Not only was the three-year-old and the 19-month-old son and daughter moved out of their home, they were also separated because of the fact that since they had both been brought up under family circumstances that were considered abnormal, and the criteria for labeling them abnormal was that the children sleep with the parents, the child is force-fed, which is... What evidence was that? That I hope all of you understand Hindi. My point, the reason why I uh, am choosing to speak about the family is because that is the area in which I work. And I sort of want to take Ulkit's point further. And link it to um, you know what Punam said and what what uh, Rajivji said earlier. I think we do need a sufficiently grand narrative to give the self-respect to Indians who are living in other parts of the world. If the way in which Indians are brought up is seen as psychoanalysis included that you are insecurely attached, correct me if I'm wrong, as far as Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth are concerned, maybe some of you have studied their work, you're considered insecurely attached if you have not had a robust attachment as an infant with a single mother. How how many of us have had the benefit of having more than one mothers, fathers, grandfathers, and so on? So by definition, Western psychology has created, without necessarily saying that because of politeness, they have created a problem by labeling Indian family system as pathological, not by directly saying that. you know, it is not a question of tolerance and one of the great things that Ji, I have been inspired and I've used your quote very often is that it is not about tolerance. I think you give an example in your book, which I had the pleasure of reading uh, last year, was that how would you feel if you told your husband that you know, I will toler- tolerate you for the rest of my life. <laughs> I think we would be divorced by the end of the day. So it's not about tolerating and now that Indian families are traveling all over the world, I think one of the key issues where we need self-respect returned to us is the ways in which we live, what we eat, what we wear, how we bring up our children, how we speak. For example, I don't think, see I'm, I'm, I eat Hindu, I walk Hindu, I talk Hindu, but I don't pray Hindu. So there it is not, for me, it is not a religious issue, and I told Sunita, I had a statutory warning attached, I will come to the talk as long as I'm not expected to be um, religiously inclined, right? But I do think that the ways in which Indians live receive a lot of flack when we travel to other parts of the world. One of my students in Canada had re- wrote to me because she did not know how to answer her colleagues when they said, you were still living with your parents? As if she was some kind of peculiar creature. I think we need the world to know how we live, why we live. Many of the decisions are economic in nature, not necessarily sentimental. And then, some are sentimental in nature, and why not? So thank you very much. I'm not gonna go on much longer.
0: Thank you, uh, Nandita. Okay, so uh, cash. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I uh, feel a little strange in saying that I'm one of those who have a grand narrative anxiety and uh, perhaps even a grand narrative phobia. Uh, It's difficult for me to think of a grand narrative that is not oppressive to certain people. Uh, the narrative of who we are as Indians, for example, uh, where did uh, our religion or where did Hinduism come from, uh, the Dalits claim that they were the, in the original inhabitants, some Dalits claim that starting with uh, Jyotiba Phule um, and then the Aryans were the migrants and uh, through various means, perhaps more Um, sociological and economic, rather than military, uh, the Dalits became the oppressed class. So uh, that's the the opposing narrative to the other narrative which says that the Hindus are always here and India has always been uh, the homeland of the Vedas and so on. So which of these two narratives is true and how can we uh, reconcile these two narratives without doing violence to one of them? Recently, I had um, an amusing uh, experience when I read uh, the version of the telling of the Ramayana by um, Periyar, the Tamil uh, politician and leader. And he has a totally different understanding of the Ramayana from what we hear in North India. Um, It is Ravan who is the hero, and it is Ram who is the villain. And um, he raises interesting questions about um, why was Shurpanakha mutilated by Lakshman? Um, she was merely expressing her desire. So, uh, what is this North Indian story, according to Periyar, saying about women who express their desire? Should they, um, should they, should their noses be cut off? Is that the way they should be treated? And Periyar uses it for his own political aims because he was active in a time when India was soon to get independence and. Um, and there was a demand for a Tamil land which would be different from the North Indian uh, part of India. Uh, so he, he tries to show that the Ramayana is a uh, is an example of North Indian oppression over the Tamilians which has continued, which has gone on for 2,000-3,000 years. Um, so here are two competing grand narratives of uh, about which, and the second one, the Periyar uh, narrative, is something most of us have not heard about. and. Uh, His particular book has been banned um, in Uttar Pradesh uh, about five times. The ban has been lifted, and then it's been banned again. Um, So that shows the kind of anxiety that a grand narrative, uh, that the questioning of our grand narrative can evoke in ourselves. So I would have difficulty in coming to a grand narrative that is grand in the sense that it explains everything. And yet, it does not. Uh, th- and yet, it does not do injustice to certain people. The other point I wanted to make. There are two other points I wanted to make. One was that um, this idea about Hinduism. Now, uh, my primary interest uh, academically has been Hinduism for many years, and to some extent also personally. And people find uh, uh, people are often surprised when they say that. Uh, you're a Muslim, or at least you have a Muslim name, and you're interested in uh, these kind of things. Um, but uh, uh, as uh, Rajivji was speaking, I was wondering, isn't a grand narrative itself un-Hindu? Um, it's, uh, the term Hinduism, as as we have just discussed, is not more than perhaps 300 years old. If I'm not ra- if I'm not uh, wrong, Ram Mohan Roy uses it the first time in 1813 or so. And so isn't it a part of being Hindu that um, there isn't one defining narrative of who I am and of who you are and of who we are as a culture and that there can be different narratives. Um, One of my teachers, um, a scholar by the name of Julius Lipner has an interesting theory about this. Uh, And he's giving, He's, in a way, giving a minimalistic narrative about the lack of narrative in Hinduism. And he says that, we talked about Indra's net. Uh, He talks about the banyan tree. And he says that, I go to the botanical garden in Calcutta and I see a banyan tree, which is at least five or six centuries old. And I cannot locate where its trunk is, because all its branches come back to the ground. They go underground and it looks like each of them is a trunk. And so, and each of them is very big and very fat, so when I stand in front of one of it, one of these branches, it looks like this is the trunk, and the rest of it, the rest of the branches are coming out from here. But then I walk five feet, and I see another branch, which is also rooted, and it looks like this is the trunk, this is the center of the tree, and the others are offshoots from here um, isn't and he suggests, and I and I tend to agree with him, that isn't one of the gifts of. What we call Hinduism—the fact that it offers us a new way of thinking, where there isn't one truth, and there isn't one book uh, or one prophet or one pilgrimage place. Uh, place. If there is um, if there's a Kashi, there's an Uttar Kashi, and there's a Dakshin Kashi. If there's a Veda, uh, there are four Vedas. There's a fifth Veda, which is the Mahabharata, and there's a Tamil Veda, um, and so on. So. I'm wondering if uh, um, these these questions have arisen in the last two or three decades about what is Hinduism and who invented Hinduism and does Hinduism exist at all? Um, perhaps we could say that uh, it exists, but does it exist in the same way as all these other narratives of the Christian and the Judaic and uh, the Muslim and, and, and also the non-religious ones? Or, or does it exist in a way that Gives us a, a, an answer to to not sticking to a narrative because that to to have a narrative uh, is inherently oppressive, as far, as far as I've been able to see. The last thing I want to say is that uh, what is the relationship between truth and narrative? Is a narrative just another name for a truth? And as scholars and as human beings, are we on the search for truth or are we on the search for narrative, which would make us feel? better about ourselves, which would make us feel confident and able to confront um, the West or the whoever we choose to call the other within our country or outside. Um, uh, what, uh, what are we looking for? Is it is the narrative necessarily true or are we going to accept something that is untrue as a narrative? Um, and I think this is important because the quest for pride or the, the quest for self-confidence can often be used in ways that are uh, ignorant of um, of certain oppressive realities. Um, I uh, I'm not sure how to give an example of this without being extremely provocative, but. Uh, uh, I think I'd like to say that uh, our quest for the truth um, in some way uh, might intersect and might contradict our quest for a narrative and what we um, as scholars set out to do is to look for an understanding which is as close to what actually happened or what is actually happening right now um, rather than what we would like to happen or what um, what makes us uh, have a greater sense of faith or confidence. So I will end uh, here, and thank you.
5: Um, let me look at this whole issue uh, because um, uh, I have studied Sri Aurobindo in great detail and he has been one of the people who have spoken about spirituality in India and its importance um, from Sri Aurobindo's perspective. Um, I'd like to uh, share with you a very personal letter that Sri Aurobindo wrote to his own wife, Mr. Nadevi, where he talked about the five dreams that he had and this was in 1914 to 1918 he did most of his writings the first dream that he said was that he wanted a free and a united India and if you go into uh, Sri um, own personal history um, in his own spiritual journey he was very much attached to you know the liberation of his motherland and only after being given assurance by the divine that his motherland would be free did he move into spirituality and in fact explore spirituality only to free his motherland. That that was his motivation to begin with. And uh, it is interesting that 15th of August is the day that when uh, he got liberated and he did did say that, you know, divine has fulfilled his promise to me. So that was the first, um, you know, dream that he had. The second... The second dream that he had was that um, uh, at that particular point of time, the people of Asia um, were, had uh, lost their cultural confidence uh, you know, with the Western Enlightenment that had come in. And while he was very much an admirer of Western Enlightenment, having grown up in London and being very much conversant with the kind of traditions of the West and also their importance, he wanted uh, the fact that uh, the, the inherent spiritual, uh, the, the cultural genius of people of uh, Asia should also come to fore. And uh, that we have seen that over a period of time that has happened and there has been a much greater culture confidence in people of Asia. The third uh, dream that he had was that um, India's gift of spirituality to the world. And he did believe, he believed that all nations have a soul. There is a kind of a central uh, sort of an inspiration that is there in each culture and all cultures ought to be able to preserve it because that is what, uh, you know, What is that is their gift to the world. And um, India being the kind of chaotic, the most, you know, varied, the most, um, one would say, most uh, religious as well as irreligious kind of places that it has been, it has actually given, it has been a kind of a laboratory where a lot of, um, you know, um, um, the, the, we have experienced or experimented with the fact that, you know, how, how, what are the heights to which we can go in terms of consciousness and the way we can also manifest it on uh, earth. And he does say that when he goes, because he did original reading of Vedas, he says that there is a spiritual impulse that originates there. And And there have been many zigzag periods. There have been periods of fall. There have been periods of, you know, losing that inspiration. But it has always survived, whether in form of Buddhism or in other forms. It has always survived. The spiritual impulse in India has always survived. And, you know, all the different people, for example, Sikhism was a very interesting synthesis of all the different Muslim you know uh, and Hindu traditions of that particular point of time similarly Kabir also tried to synthesize so there has been a tendency to put together the kinds of um, uh, uh, you know uh, inspirations that India has come up with at different points of time and this is a gift that one must be able to share with the world and we have found that you know today people are much more open to spirituality now having said that he also um, cautioned against the problems of spirituality. Uh, He distinguished between what he called the ascetic denial and the material denials. He said that the materialist denies the spirituality and the spiritual persons, the ascetic spiritual person denies the fact that there is a reality of suffering and pain in the world and wants to escape to some other worlds. So, uh, being a life-affirming, um, um, uh, you know, having a life-affirming kind of a perspective, he said, you, you cannot have a kind of spirituality that does not engage with the problems of the world and its suffering, and it must be life-affirming. And if you, even if you looked at, um, you know, in India, if you looked at any of the traditions in his foundations of Indian culture, he talks about it. He said, whether it's dance or it's music or it's Architecture or various different forms, they have never been complete without in touch, you know, without in touching, so to say, the body of God. One has to be able to touch divinity eventually if one has to be able to experience, you know, something. So even, um, and in this, again, uh, his uh, definition of spirituality is very broad. He says, for example, an honest atheist or an atheist or an agnostic is better than a you know dishonest spiritualist, so he says in evolution in human evolution, it is very important to celebrate diversity, and it is eventually the authenticity that we have within our being our beliefs that is that that should be somewhere contained and we, it's not, because the moment we say that, you know, our truth lies somewhere else beyond us, that, that moment is a false leap that we are making, that somebody else will decide our reality for us. So, um, an atheist, for example, is grappling with an issue of God. You know whether God exists in this world or not and that is a very very honest search and that must be allowed for human evolution. So this is his definition of spirituality and he says that India has had several different forms of Hinduism in that sense and um, also because his uh, tradition was synthetic. Um, we find that, you know, he talked about, for example, Mother would tell beautiful stories about um, Prophet Muhammad or the Buddha she wrote on Dhammapad. Uh, Shorabinder talked about Sikhism, all different forms of yoga. And he says that this is, um, uh, that's his next point that he moves to. He says it's not just about India. It is about creating a world consciousness. It's also about creating an international unity. And um, as far as 1914, he predicted that, you know, for example, Euro- European Union will be affected, you know. So he, he knew, I mean, f- through his foresight, that, you know, that these are the th- in, uh, organizations that are very important. He, for example, wanted a very, very strong UN and uh, the, the internationalism to emerge very strongly. And that also brings me to the whole point of the fact that, you know, we cannot talk about our own culture strengths without talking about the the strengths of other cultures too. It is a synthetic tradition and that is the dream of Orwell as well. That, you know, all cultures, it's an experiment where all cultures learn to live in harmony with each other, preserving their own uh, genius, so to say, as well as at the same time. um, So there is variety because he he calls it the, the ideal law of social development, that there is variety, and at the same time, there is this variety is something that is held together by spiritual oneness, and that is very, very important. So, uh, the, the variety, while we are very diverse, and uh, you're different from each other and that needs to be celebrated and that needs to be encouraged. There is also that inherent oneness that holds us together. And as, uh, you know, uh, people who are academicians and also people who are discoursing within this, we need to find ways psychologically also as to how to, you know, um, uh, create that oneness within. And here he also between. Uh, he says, as we go within, as we, we, we look at the realms within, we, we look at our own swadharma and you know, our own self-mastery, uh, find ways of doing that, one must be able to distinguish it between what he calls true subjectivity and false subjectivity. He says false subjectivity is ego-based. And that is something, that kind of a discourse must be avoided and true subjectivity is inclusive in nature. And that, that um, eventually as, as we are finding our own truth as Indians in our own diversity, we must be able to also be celebrate, celebrate the same for the other and we must be able to include that within our own vision. So that was the uh, fourth dream, and the fifth dream was that that we are not the uh, you know, end of evolution; that we are transitional beings, and we must um, be able to evolve further. You know, we are uh, our grand narratives are actually not outside; they're written within our own souls, uh, because um, uh, it should be a kind of a journey. He says uh, it's a very really beautiful, um, you know, sentence in which says that. Uh, and a person integral, a of integral yoga for example, will not rest, he will never say my guru, my avatar, my country. He said he will never rest till he has found all the truths, a truth in all the truths that exist around him and be able to harmonize them. So this is uh, the kind of uh, the evolutionary step forward that he looks at and actually Indra's Net is a beautiful image for that. You know, that uh, one should be able to see oneself and see all, you know, uh, within that as well. And um, uh, I would say that, you know, um, as um, we explore this diversity, it should be our journey within and the capacity to harmonize, the capacity to look at both the sides, to listen deeply to each other, not just dialogue, but, you know, uh, because when we say dialogue, sometimes we are doing it with our own minds. It's a deep listening to the other that is very, very important and uh, to create you know, harmonies of our own soul in a sense and weave it into our own being as we interact with more and more people. So thank you. So uh, thank you, Monica. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so we- Namaskar. Um, Actually, when Sunit sent me the invitation and the format, I got into deep agitation because he had mentioned Lata Shenava, TISS Mumbai. The reason for this agitation is uh, I have been, um, you know, looking for the truth as they say. And then they say, um, you know, uh, you're affiliated to somebody, you're associated to somebody you cannot be provocative. You know, I can get away with anything. Yeah. Now, it becomes easier. And uh, if they challenge me, you know, the other day somebody was saying, you know, when somebody in the midst of a discussion, take this? it's on, Can you hear? Um, you know, when in the, you're in the midst of a discussion, not an argument. Huh? He says, somebody starts calling you Nazi, you're winning the argument. You know, uh, in this uh, for some time, and before that also, I used to work in a parish school for almost 23 years with special children. I, the agitation is for two reasons. One is that, um, you know, my interest is not in Hinduism or narratives or whatever, they don't interest me at all. I work with children, children interest me. The woman interests me because children, are important across cultures. Now culture, I think, out of 46, only 45, 45, have been exterminated, only one remains. Religion is, religion came in, I think, in the 7th century, the first time to India, we didn't have religions. And uh, not Raja Ram roy in 1830, but the British created it when the census was compiled. So they wanted to separate out the Jains, the Muslims, the Christians, from the so-called Hindus. So that's when the coin Hindu was terminated. In the Portuguese they use the word Gentus. That is still used in some of the records, and this is not from Nagpur or RSS headquarters. They're from the collector's records. There is enough evidence which I can give you references for. So for me, why children? Because children constitute 40 to 45% of the Indian population. Children's happiness used to be very important across cultures. And families in cultures, collectivistic cultures, we now have what Weber's introduced, the methodological individualism that we talk of. Where personal gratification,